All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Our guest today spent 23 years in the public education system as a teacher, literacy coach, guidance dean, and assistant principal, witnessing firsthand how the system helped white students thrive while continuing to marginalize black students. In 2016, she left the education system and started Being Black at School, where she serves as the founder and executive director. Being Black at School helps teachers, school boards, and students navigate tough conversations in the classroom, helps to build grassroots movements around the country to stand together and speak up for black students, and works with elected officials and decision makers to develop policies that promote equity and safety. Best known as Mocha Mama on the internet for her blog chronicling her life as a former teen parent and single mother who took her then three-year-old to college with her, she's been a tireless advocate for anti-racism and dismantling systemic oppression and structures of power that contribute to many of the polarizing issues our society faces. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kelly Wickham Hurst as much as I did, and please share, subscribe, rate, and review the show if you do. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate being here. Yeah, so why don't we just start with your journey to where you are right now? So just to kind of the quick highlight reels, I know you spent a long time in the educational system, and and now you're you're kind of out of outside of that educational system, kind of looking in and helping shift practice largely around anti-racism work. And so just kind of your journey to get to, to where you are right now, what got you here? So I grew up in Chicago, and I'm the daughter of a black man from New Orleans and a white woman from South Dakota. And who met in Chicago. Wow. <laughs> and uh, they purposefully raised us in an area that was very diverse, so much so that when we started moving south and went to the suburbs, I really wondered where all those white people came from because they did not make up a large percentage of what I saw every day. Um, I saw a lot of actual diversity. And Moving out of that community into another community and then being an adult, becoming a teacher, I moved into a community that was even more white. And I didn't think that um, my own unpacking of issues of race and who I was and my identity was all that important while I was in a really diverse community. It became really important when I was in a community that um, gave me two different messages. One, they would say that we should never talk about race because we're all colorblind, um, which is absolute baloney. Let's talk about that. And, let's hit the pause button and let's just, yeah. just unpack that a little bit um, because I run into that, you know, I think everybody runs into that and you can tell the, I think the intention behind that statement is, is, is good most of the time, you know, but what, what is baloney about it or what, what do you, what's troubling? Well, so until I understood that even the colorblind um, ideology was actually a movement in the United States, 
um, that it was a way for people to actually shut down conversations and stop talking about race because our, our every single thing in this country, in, the, in this continent, we're a settler colonial nation, right? And we have been trying not to tell our own history for a very, very long time. So when I talk about history, for example, I talk about it in, in ways where I say, I'm actually not going to attempt to be objective because no history was objectively told to me. Mm -hmm. um, I have to know white European and American history because that was required in schools. If I want to know anything about my own history from my father's side of the family, that's an elective. And so the movement that actually was coming about was started by white mothers, um, some of it, not all of it, but white mothers who were trying to get their mixed race children to be um, to be their own category of race, right? Which, as we know, there is no such thing as race. It's a completely made up. Um, it's it's something that we made up so that we could be political. Mm -hmm. um, so that we could use it politically. And so being colorblind was a way for us to just say, let's all just be nice about this now. I know we started on genocide and enslavement <laughs> and war, but could we just be nice and not think about the fact that the Supreme Court has ruled that we're an apartheid nation? Can we not think about the number of indigenous people in this country who have been killed and, and, and tribes that we don't even know the names of because they were completely wiped out? Can we not think about that and, and just look at everybody as a person, which is fine if that's what we were doing prior to 1492. Yeah. And that's not what we were doing. We had to, we have to, so all, all history is, that's what you can see behind me. I know that your listeners won't be able to see it, but I have this giant wall of history it's actually taking two walls up in my house where I continue to learn about history and then I mark it. I, I, I don't want to forget it. Yeah. So colorblindness is a detour. I think as Paul, Dr. Paul Gorski says, we have these racial equity detours so that we don't have to talk about the inequities and um, colorblindness is really just, it's cruel and mm -hmm. it's a way for us to ignore the foundations and the ideologies that built this nation. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a friend not that long ago, kind of when that All Lives Matter movement was really picking up steam. And it was a similar right. conversation. It's like, you know, he's a firefighter. And he's like, you know, when something's on fire, when there's a city burning, when New Orleans was underwater, we didn't say all cities matter. That's right? Right. We rushed to the aid of that community. And I think that that's a, that's a great metaphor for how, how, how we view kind of race and racism in, in, in North America, for sure. Like you yeah. say, yeah. It's, it's not something that we can just ignore we can't ignore hundreds of years of of oppression and uh and structured you know the way we've structured society around that and certainly school would be a manifestation of that so let's dip back into your journey you're you're you taught for a long time so you you're teaching yeah. in a predominantly white school and what what was that experience like what what did you start to I, why, I, why aren't I, you still I, there <laughs> so many reasons yeah. um a lot of what was happening Happening in for me as a new teacher was I, I think like many many people that go into education I wanted to make a difference I liked children I liked um, learning so I liked teaching and I wanted that completely ex intrinsic experience of taking all of what I knew and sharing it um, and then things started to shift for me I thought well, well what am I learning here in the process so. <laughs> I'm not the only teacher in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so what I kept doing was I was noticing all of the racism that was occurring. I was noticing 
who got sent to the office. So noticing racism in a school is different than noticing racism in a system. And so I began to take my macro lens of what was happening just in my classroom, just with my students and pulling it all the way back. And I thought, you know, I can actually fix racism if I just become a principal. Makes sense, right? All roads lead to right. leadership. Yeah. <laughs> power, just uh, get some power. Um, yeah. Right. I tell that story a lot because it's it mortifies me to think that that's how I thought I was going to fix this, that I was going to fix an entire system. And so I became an administrator and then realized, oh my gosh, not only am I now seeing this on a systemic level, I'm complicit because I have to follow the policies. I'm in, I'm a person who's on a team who's making policies and then enforcing policies that I actually completely disagree with. So there were a lot of things that I saw that were so unfair and, and would probably sum up very, very easily the school to prison pipeline, yeah. which... I think people know it. Uh, if you're outside of education, you know it as a phrase, but I don't know if it makes a lot of concrete sense to you. So I illustrate that with a story of two boys. Um, both were eighth grade boys, one white, one black. And the white boy, um, he brought drugs to school. And you get normally a 10-day suspension for that. We didn't want him out on the streets selling the drugs because that was what he was going to do. And he didn't have good street smarts. I was really worried he was going to be killed. Yeah. And so as a team of administrators, we determined that we were going to give him some minutes with the social worker, the, some minutes with the, psych, uh, the school psychologist when she came in. Um, he would have minutes with me as his um, assistant principal, and I was going to help him um, catch up on his missing work and get him some of the tutoring that he needed. And, you know, it was really a wraparound services kind of model, which I have no problem yeah. with. I think that is how we're supposed to respond to children um, and their behaviors that are that are completely normal. Yeah. The next week, we had a black student, um, also a boy, who was truant, and he was truant for the very first time. I know this because every morning I sat or where I stood for morning duty, I would see him, and I didn't see him that morning. I'm like, that's really weird. I wonder what he's doing. Didn't really think of it until his mother called to say, "I'm out of town, and a friend's just told me she saw him at McDonald's." <laughs> is he there? And I'm like, as a matter of fact, he's not. So the long story short is that he wanted to be truant for that day because he wanted to go off with an older girl, probably um, experiment a little bit with drugs and sex and uh, finally find him. He comes back to school. Mom is, she's just devastated that, that he's made this choice, um, but also wants him home safe. Yeah. When I returned um, and when he returned, uh, to school the two days later, I was actually out of the building. So I checked in with my administrative team to find out what we did. And the principal said, well, I asked our school resource police officer to talk to him. I'm like, why would you do that? Well, I wanted him to tell him what path he's going to go down if this is what he's planning on doing. And I'm like, I, I don't know if you're paying attention to the news, but if we call the police on black children, sometimes those kids end up dead. Yeah. And she said, I knew you were going to make this about race. <laughs> so I'll tell you what I did. I also asked a local neighborhood police officer to also talk to him because he's black. And I said, let me get this straight. Cause I think you think that you said something better to me by telling me you just called two cops on a child. You're telling me that you asked police to intervene on a child who was truant at school, which is not our policy. It is not the way that we operate, but that we have a known drug dealer in our building that you didn't ask the police to speak to. Is yeah. that what just happened? And um, 
that was the beginning of the end for me, that particular week of, of those two students, because I was, she was convinced that I was making it about race. I was convinced she was going to get a child killed. And, and to me, that took precedence, that that was really important, that you convinced this mother that what she, that what our response was to have, was to have the cops talk to your son. That's the school to prison pipeline right there. Yeah. Who knows how he would have reacted? I mean, he, he reacted fine with the first one. I stopped the second one from coming in and talking to him and then got to the bottom of the issue. What's really going on with you? Like, what's happening with you? You, you've had perfect attendance for two years. I, You've got really supportive parents. I, I come and watch you at the basketball games. You know, your grades aren't great. You're not lighting the world on fire, but what do you need? And he needed some emotional support. He so what why the, white, uh, the white kid got. needed a chat with the social worker. And, uh, yeah. Right. So we talk a lot about what kids of color, students of color don't get. But I think that it's important when we're having a conversation about equity to say, well, what do white children get? Because what white children get is what everyone should get, and they don't. Um, so that was that was in 2016. I left the school district. I started uh, Being Black at School, which is a nonprofit that advocates for black students. Uh, I'm firmly convinced that if we take care of the most marginalized and oppressed of anyone in our community, that we take care of everyone. Yeah. And so I just helped to, I try to push some equity conversations forward, like with the conversation you and I are having right here. Awesome. And, uh, How's that going? How's uh, what's the response been? What what kind of opportunities and challenges do you see or do you face in in that work? Um, you know, for context, I'm doing not anti-racism work specifically, but um, right use of power work. And so, how it's it's two sides of the same coin from my perspective. Absolutely. You know, all roads lead to power. And when we when we look at systemic oppression, when we look at racism, when we look at misogyny, when we look at all of these issues facing society, it really you you. It's a you know quick one or two steps back to power and who has it yeah. and how There's a, there is a through line yeah. right the through line of power in all of those um, things that you just named. So I was really worried how it was going to go, but remember this was 2016 and we have this line of demarcation in uh, the United States of the election of 2016. I was going to ask: Is the work harder <laughs> or easier now that it's such a like it's in our it's in our in our face topic now? Has that made, has that opened doors to conversations? But I also wonder about the polarization that, that's happened. Yeah. It's, it's so kind of always been like, yeah, go, go crazy. What's, what's right. happening you after know, 2016? I think when, prior to 2016, this conversation was hard. I was having the same kind of conversations like I was just sharing with you with the principal. You always make it about race. You, yeah. You're always bringing up race. And I'm like, you're, you're also giving me all of the data that's disaggregated by race. So you are handing this to me and then telling me not to talk about it. I don't understand how I'm supposed to do those two things. So there's something that actually happens that really does bother me. And that after the election, the day after the election, I had the, um, the nonprofit established for just a couple of months at that time. And the next day I woke up and there was $4,000 in donations the day after the election. And I was like, what happened here? Like what, what is really happening here? And what I was hearing from people were things that they think were compliments, but they were not. And they were Kelly, what you're doing is even more important now. And I would say, that's not true. What I was doing was important before and you weren't listening. Mm -hmm. You thought I was being divisive or polarizing. And I was pointing out to you things that are now you can't escape having these conversations 
we can't escape having a discussion about immigration right now or how we are treating LGBTQ um, communities or how racism has just been incredibly pervasive um, and in your face and, and so much violence that's on the rise, right? So in many ways, to answer your question, it's easier to have this conversation because there is a certain segment of the population who was like, well, I think this is a problem, but I'm not sure how. And also, we don't even know how to have this damn conversation. Uh, we don't have the same vocabulary. We're, you know, you've, I'm certain, Jeff, you've had discussions with people that you're like, time out. Define <laughs> what you're saying. Because respect. I have a- Let's talk about respect. Power. Right. Let's talk about power. Let's get on the same page. Right. And so right now what people are doing is they're clamoring to have this discussion because they're like, we're screwing it up. It's so messed up. Also, it is larger than what I thought it was. It's not like individual racism is, I think, what what we have all been sort of um, socialized to identify. Like we play a game that I call find the racist, mm-hmm. right? Like we can find the racist in the White House. Actually, we can find a lot of them, right? And yet getting that person out of that position of power and, and stripping those people of power is not going to fix the system. It removes the person. I'm talking about the system as a whole and and what are the policies that have been put in place that have allowed this system to flourish, right? And no system is safe. So I mostly talk about it from the school perspective, but I also, as an educator, am really sick and tired of every time a problem is too big for society, we give it to schools to fix, right? Brown versus board was fixing, like that court case in the United States was actually meant to overturn another court case that didn't have to do with education at all. It had to do with transportation. Mm-hmm. It overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. So we've got transportation, education. What else do we have in there? Well, we've got housing because where you live and how you get to school are all connected. Um, when you look at where jobs are, when you look at at medical issues and who gets access to health care, um, all of these systems are operating in concert with one another. And it requires a dismantling of all of them. Yeah. So how do you? I got to take a deep breath there because. <sighs> no, it's. That's, uh, a big, that's a big thing. Yeah. I mean, all roads lead to power and, and the structures that we've built in society give power to certain groups. You know, we talk about. So in, in the right use of power framework, we talk about kind of four different types of power. So personal power, which often I think is where that anti or that racism conversation stops, like find the racist, find the person. Right. And that's, you know, as individuals, we have responsibility to make choices and to be informed and to do like, but only so much at, a, at the individual level. Um, and then we talk about role power and the power that you have because you are in a position of authority, right. Whether you're paid for it or whether it's been granted to you. So as our politicians and our, you know, our, our principals in our schools and those types of things, that role comes with it, um, a defined power scope and how you hold that power, um, can make or break it, right? Like you're talking about how you treat a white kid who's dealing drugs versus a black kid who didn't show up to school, right? That choice is based on, inside of a role. And I think people sometimes abdicate their role power back to the systems, right? To the like, well, it's just the policy. It's just how we do things. It's just, you know, li- list your excuse. And a lot yep. of people hide behind that, um, the structures that we've built and haven't questioned. And so I'm all about yep. questioning the structures that we've built. And are these actually doing the things we think they are? You know, is this, how's this working for us? Because it doesn't seem to be like it's working. Um, and then we talk about status power and status power is really just kind of a neutralized type of term for membership 
and the membership you have based on ethnicity, based on language, based on education, based on gender, you know, all of those, you know, I'm, I'm a privileged white guy, right? I'm a middle-aged, well-educated, English-speaking white guy. I have a tremendous amount of power. And how I know I have power is because I don't have to think about it, right? <laughs> People who have power, don't. we just don't have to think about it. I can, I can walk down the street. I can walk into a store. I can, you know, I can get my needs met in a myriad of ways um, because I have the power to do it. And I'm, it's unconscious to me. And so... A lot of the work I do is just bringing that to the consciousness of, of people. Like how do we understand power and how does it impact the people around us? And then the, the fourth type of power is this collective power. And so, you know, the, the power of, you know, people who are in these down power positions who don't have as much influence in, in the world, you know, we see them, we see them um, collect it with each other and, you know, the, the unions to, to Black Lives Matter, like that's all those are collective movements to address power inequalities. So those are the four kind of constructs that I'm often working with people with. And the status one, that's a particular like the membership piece, which you know falls pretty firmly into the work that you're doing around anti-racism is how do we understand that? And how do you open up conversations with people around their status and their membership? Like maybe some, some advice or some kind of, do you have a bit of a methodology when you walk into a room full of educators that opens up space for that conversation without, without people getting their backs up? and feeling like they're they're being picked on because their color of their skin or their their language. yeah because who wants to come into a room and talk about racism like hey we're having a workshop on racism but i'm not racist i don't, I don't think party. i need to go to that one right i'm not racist he's yeah. um it's so funny because as a as a mixed race person um who has a lot of light-skinned privilege right i know i have some privileges too right education language um i can code switch very very easily um that that there's a there's a way that I thought about my own status and the own and power that goes along with that, um, but then also how to use that, mm-hmm. and so that's what I take into rooms with me. Um, I think that part of what I have to do is we have to talk about the institution, we have to talk about the levels of the institution and where people are and where their power is um, located there. But we also, I also know that what I have to do is I have to go into rooms and I have to be really vulnerable because of the identity work that I've done. That I don't, um, I don't talk very, uh, I do talk very frankly about being a mixed race black woman, or I might just say I'm a black woman, right? <laughs> because in the United States, historically, if you have one drop, you're black, right? Magic- magically, <laughs> with that, you know, then you have people that say, but, but I'm colorblind. Okay, no, not when this nation built laws around how you were going to determine who I was, um, what, I, what I could have access to, whether that's citizenship, um, land ownership, uh, property, jobs, education, all of those things. So part of the work that I do has to do with identity, who I am, how I understand myself in the world, that I am the, I'm the black daughter who happens to have a white mother, but I'm never going to be the white daughter who happens to have a black father. It doesn't operate like that in the United States and in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I don't like, I don't like that construct, it is how I've been socialized. So how I use that is to talk about systems and not about people, and not about all of the racism that I've experienced in my own life, which has mostly come from white women. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a really important part here because white women have historically found themselves um, um, 
using that particular privilege to distance themselves from the white men. When we talk about slave owners in this country, we talk about white men. When we talk about those who cleared the land of the indigenous peoples, we talk about white men, right? That that's who went to war. That is who committed the genocide. That is who, you know, bought human beings as chattel slavery, which, you know, put them into these positions for life. And yet more than 40% of white women own slaves in this country. This is not something that white women want to talk about. They want to talk about, and let's go back to what you said about power. But my position as a white woman is I don't have power. Mm -hmm. We couldn't even vote until 1920. We couldn't even get out of the house and have jobs until, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. 50s or 60s or whatever it is. And, and that, boy, does that erase a whole lot of people like white women, you got out of the house to get jobs because you had help because you employed people who were formerly enslaved, because you employed people who came here from another country, because, you know, you've got a lot of privilege there. So I talk about, um, and I'm not sure if you've read my essay on the certain looking white woman. I did the other day, yeah. Okay, so women who consistently asked me if I was okay or where my father stole me from or asked me if I was kidnapped, that I can't even put a number as to how many times that's happened in my life. And what that does is, um, is dehumanizing. It is. Um, it has done some damage to, and it has also shaped me as a daughter to both of my parents. So I am extremely obedient with my father. Uh, he, if I was out with him, I did not want those white women to ask me about my humanity. Um, and so I did what he said when he said it and tried to make myself very small and not noticeable. I was the hellion with my mother. I was an absolute, she called me a goblin probably. Like if a white woman were disciplining me in public, no one ever stopped her or said anything to her about it. So that actually has shaped my relationships with my parents. To this day, my father thinks I can do no wrong. I am a perfect angel. I have a strained, much more strained relationship with my mother. It's, it's, it's fine. Like I'm not saying it's totally damaged, but it definitely has shaped some things there that we have had to unpack as well. Like, what does this mean? And I have to just say, racism is the cause of some of my problems with my own relationships. Like it has shaped some things in damaging ways. It has damaged me, it has damaged my mother, it has damaged my father um, in in so many, I think tangible ways that, that I consistently have to unpack. So when I go into rooms and I say, Hey, I'm here to talk about racism uh, and here to talk about equity and here to talk about, you know, what, what real equity and justice and liberation look like. I have to use my own story and be vulnerable in that space. Otherwise people won't listen to me. And I know that that is a privilege, but I've learned how to use it. And how do you, cause I imagine that gets tiring to Mm -hmm. how do you how do you manage that how do you what keeps you what keeps you doing the work that you're that you're doing because it's not easy work in fact it's you know tackling something like structural oppression and systemic racism is about the most daunting piece of work that i can imagine stepping Mm -hmm. into and so what what keeps you going what uh, so it's the fourth thing on the issues of power that you talked about it's collective um and it's healing And so part of what I do is, uh, well, I give myself time after I have done some training. I'm very extroverted. I can, if you said to me, Kelly, our keynote speaker didn't show up, you got 
10 minutes to prepare for 500, I'd be like, all right, what's the topic? <laughs> Give me an outline. I'll go do that. I can think out loud and I, that's fine. And then when I'm done, I'm completely introverted. I can't talk to anyone. I, my children who are all adults um, and my husband, uh, no one calls me and talks to me. And I have to process and decompress and spend some inward time. And then I have to, so there's the personal part, right? And then I have to go back to my communities, my collective communities to do some healing because part of this work and telling stories and owning my narrative is healing. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's tiring. Yes. it's, It's a daunting task. And, and yes, I'm healed when I do it. I'm healed when I name it. I'm healed when I use the vocabulary that I have learned as a part of this oppressive work, right? That I actually have to surround myself with people. And I have very, very good, a great support network of people who know what I do and say, how, how are we taking care of one another here as we're doing this together? So, and I don't think that everybody gets that or has that. I think I stumbled upon well, actually, I think it's one of the, when I think about the education system, so I've done lots of work with, with teachers on power issues and, and nonviolent communication. Like those are kind of the two things that I like to bring as kind of tool toolkits for people. And one of the, I guess, frame of references or one of the, the mantras of right use of power is that self-care is part of our ethical practice. It's not part of our optional practice. So self-care mm-hmm. is ethical, not optional um, because it's, it, you know, when I look into the helping professions, when you talk about white women and you talk about social workers, educators, um, predominantly 95% white women, right? At least up, up, up in Canada in the, in the places that I'm working. And yeah. so in the U S it's in educated in education, I think it's 83 to 85% somewhere yeah, around there. So, you know, a huge predominance of, of women in, in the helping professions. And when you look at stress levels and when you look at lack of self-care, you know, my wife's a great example. She teaches grade two. We've got three small kids. Self-care sometimes is the last thing to, to be on the agenda. And that impacts us as people. When we're not well, how can we hold our power, right? And so I go into schools and I see people whose intentions are great, right? They don't intend to impact kids in a negative way, but their impact, you know. So another, you know, intentions and impact, I don't care about your good intentions, right? It's right. like it's like the colorblind conversation. Your intentions right. behind that might be great, but it doesn't actually matter because it's your impact, that's that right. makes the difference. And let's talk about impact and let's talk about how people are actually doing in these systems. And let's talk about how you're doing. And so I actually have, I used to talk about self-care last in, with a lot of groups. And now I've actually moved it up to, to be mm. kind of primary because I think when we're not well, and it, you know, that's from personal experience. When I haven't been well, I haven't been my best leader. I haven't been able to show up and be present and engaged and reflective and all of the things that you need if we're going to learn and grow and change some of these systems. And so, you know, I, I'd like to hear, um, so I'd love to hear that you're, you've got those strategies and those support networks, because another problem with self-care, especially in, in these institutions is that it, it is, it's called self-care, right? Something you get to do on your own time after right. you've done all the work, as opposed to a system of care, where it's like, we're actually having conversations about it. We're talking about it. We're going to make, put it on the agenda for the staff meeting. We're going to talk about it in one-on-one supervisions. We're like, when you talk about structural, pieces. And that was a big shift when I was yeah. introduced to right use of power and I was working in addictions and mental health treatment and had a staff team of about 15. And once we like actually looked at it, we had to shift our practice. We had to shift the structure and we had to say, okay, if self-care is ethical, if it's as ethical as our documentation and every other training that we do and the standards that we uphold ourselves, we put self-care up there too. 
you know, what is that? How does that implicate leadership? So I was in a leadership role. What do I need to do to build a structure for my staff to be well? And, and was, that's radical. Like, and it shouldn't be. But it that's shouldn't be radical, radical. but it's it, it is absolutely radical. And and that's so that's a lot of work that I'm doing these these days is to not necessarily. Well, I guess because I'll get your get your thoughts on this topic, which is the when you say, call it anti-racism, right? Even when I call it right use of power or nonviolent communication, that that language is loaded right up with um, people's ability to interpret that as like, oh, you're calling me violent. Like, why do I need mm-hmm. to learn nonviolent communication? because we're all violent all the time it's like i was violent today with my eight-year-old getting him out the door i'm sure um from his perspective so what how do you tackle that i guess it goes back to that how do how do we embrace the individual and let them be safe when we're talking about something that is is core to identity so when you're talking about doing identity work that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about power and racism and gender and these pieces it's it, it really is core to to who we are so how do you hold that safe space well and that's you know something i've appreciated about your twitter feed is you seem to be able to hold the kind of firm let's talk about impact let's talk about what's really happening without being exclusive exclusive and without necessarily yeah. pushing people away from the conversation because one of the issues we're seeing is just a polarization right it's like we can't even talk about a real thing anymore because as soon as you say gender or as soon as you say race you get the immediate like switch goes off I'm not racist. I don't have to be a part of this conversation. As if we've not been racialized, as if we've not been genderized, right? Genderized. I'm not even sure if that's the word. <laughs> but as, if, as if we haven't set up these structures in our societies that have that have forced us all into these different roles, right? Until yeah. we start thinking about it. You know, you were asking me about my granddaughter. One of the things that she's really making me think about, she's almost three, is um, so we, li- we live in Illinois and there's corn everywhere. and so she's noticing this year like well what is that that's a field of corn and i was telling her she's what's going to happen like she knows what corn is because she's eaten it before and so i'm telling her the story about what's going to happen at harvest time which isn't yet but it's coming up right so the farmer is going to come out and the farmer is going to cut down this corn and as i'm telling her the story in my head the farmer's a man and i'm getting ready to use the pronoun he Mm -hmm. And I immediately thought to myself, how about I switch this up? And like, because that's definitely a gendered role that we talk about. And so I switched it and said, and when she knows that the corn is ready, she will come out and harvest the corn. She's going to cut it all down. She's going to take it and get it processed. And then she's going to take it to the supermarket where we're going to go and we're going to buy it so that we can bring it home to eat. Right? Like I'm already thinking about the ways that I'm, I'm a part of the problem here. Mm-hmm. If I don't actually resist the narratives that I've been told, uh, it, the same goes for race, right? I have to, I have to shift the narrative. I have to own the narrative, um, which goes back to what you just, we were just talking about with healing. Like when I tell my own story, that's really powerful and no one can tell my story better than me. No one knows me better than I know me. So why am I going to allow someone else to tell the story? The thing that made it really easy, easier for me to leave a system that I was being harmed in, that I was consistently told I was wrong. I was being divisive. I was being, I was the real racist because I brought up race. Um, <laughs> Reverse the thing racism, that, right? Is that exactly right? That's why I'm like, what's your definition? Because <laughs> we've different definitions here. Um, what I was doing at the same time was writing a blog about being a teacher about being a parent. I was talking about being a mother. Um, And I was owning my story there. 
So when all of these rumors were getting around my own community about how I was behaving as an administrator in one of our schools here, many people called and said, I, I've read you for a long time. I know that what they're saying is not true. Mm-hmm. I know that you have been working for equity and for justice and that you have been fighting for children and that they are trying to silence you. And I thought, wow, do you know how important it is that I told my story when I did? Mm-hmm. Because it could have very easily gone the other way. I could have, I could have very easily been painted as the, she's the troublemaker. She's the one that's causing all the issues here, um, which would have been a, another traumatic thing for me to have to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. Like this was trauma. Anyway, we talk about trauma a lot in schools and we're, that is currently a big part of our conversation. Um, and yet we don't talk about the healing. Like, we're ju- are we just talking about trauma so that we can name it, so that we can say, yeah, our kids are tra- traumatized? Guess what, teachers? You are first responders. You are traumatized, too. Mm-hmm. You are living with your own trauma. You brought it into the school with you. And unless you start talking about the ways that you are healing as a community, as a school community, um, as the larger community in which you live, as the nation, as the world, like this global community, then we're just spinning our wheels here and we're not getting anywhere. And and I think that that's a big part of the message as to when people say, how do you continue this work? I keep on healing in my community. I keep healing personally. I heal within my family. I, I have a friend group, right? Like there are ways that we can do this work, but we have to think about how we're healing in the process. And my healing isn't necessarily just the self care of I'm going to go get a manicure, but there's my nails. <laughs> nope. Don't do that. But Like my healing could be, I am going to lay down for 20 minutes, listen to nothing, listen to my own thoughts, meditate, process, do some yoga, whatever it is. But that's the part of, that's as much a part of my day that I schedule in as anything else. Like I'm going to do this for a while. I'm going to be on Twitter in the morning, which is my, that's my best time. Right. Uh, And sometimes I'll get a wild hair and be like, well, this is a, this is a whole thread that I'm going to tell a story today. And then I have to walk away from it Mm -hmm. and I've got to do some healing in the process. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that perspective on, on trauma and healing, because I think that we have gotten way too focused on the trauma side of things you know i've and actually i just wrote a post that got some hits the other day about the problem with trauma-informed practice is because we haven't moved past it and people don't need us to be present with our trauma they need us to be present with them like compassionately present with them and we spend so much time thinking about trauma and you know anyway we we could go that's a separate rabbit hole go on and on i do i do want to share that uh something i've learned from a very wise friend her name is dr kimia saraf who said that when we are doing trauma work we have to listen protect and connect and i think that people might hear that and go okay so we just have to listen to people's trauma that's not it you don't even have to know what a child's trauma is in the classroom as a matter of fact that's that's a little trauma porny for me like Mm -hmm. i don't need to know um but we also have to protect them And in protecting them, we don't have to actually name that we're protecting them. We just have to actually mitigate some of the trauma for them. We just have to say, I hear you. I see you. What are the tools that you have in order to to work through this, right? Like, I'm not going to save you from this trauma because Mm -hmm. I can't. But how can I support you and how can I connect with you on a real human cellular level in order to produce in you a really healthy human being, right? 
that's that like listen, protect, and connect. I just can't like she said this to me a couple of weeks ago, and I I finally told her last week. I'm like, your words are just loud in my head. <laughs> loud. Yeah, that's that's a great one. I I like to use uh, protection, affection, direction. Those are the three oh. things we need to protect kids. We need to they need to know that they they're loved, and they need they need direction. They need they need some help in and guidance and facilitation of kind of what's next for them yep. and then inter- intervention after protection affection direction then intervention if we if we have to but intervention is the last option if all three fail but that's usually the first one right oh so and so is having a hard time let's get them out of the classroom and talking to the school counselor like no 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 that's the very last thing you should be doing and there's a thousand things you can do before you, we get to that point um, do it so backwards sometimes so backwards yep but um I don't. I don't. We've only got about ten minutes left. You've got. Uh, you've got to run. So if you, have, what do you have for, for thoughts for say a, a professional, whether they're let's say educator, um, who is wanting to undertake some of this work, some of this, you know, their own healing and also bringing it into their into their school system, whether it's at the classroom level, or amongst their colleagues. What's their best first steps? Like, what should people be thinking about? Because it can be pretty overwhelming. You know, I often you know, give people the book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog by Bruce Perry uh, around trauma. And that book is heavy. Like that's a, that can take you a year to get through because it's full of like, it's, it's hard work healing, right? And it's sometimes easier to hide from healing and not, not address it. And so if somebody's step, stepping into that space where they're kind of looking at their own practice and their own wellness and how they're impacting other people, what's the, what are your first kind of go-to steps? What should people be thinking about? Um, you know, I'm going to go back to even the way that you and I connected, which is via social media. I think that there is uh, social media has a lot of bad parts to it. We know that. And yet um, the best professional learning community I've ever been in has been on Twitter and uh, lis- listening and learning from people. I have read more research in the last three years than I read in the, in the 23 years that I was in a school system. And Uh, what I've come to understand is that, you know, most of our research in the school systems currently is 10 years too late. Like we're 10 years behind at least that's a, I may be too generous there. You're too generous. What, from what I've read, it's 15 to 20 years from research to practice in addiction and mental health anyway, but I, I doubt that it's different in education. Yeah, probably not. And so I think I would just encourage people to start where they are, right? Like there's someone in your community who's doing this work that you can learn from. uh, So they don't have to be on Twitter. They can be in your actual physical community and to seek out those people who are already fighting injustices, Um, seek out and support those people who are doing the work because it's already been done. You know, like I'm, I haven't, I haven't invented anything. I have just learned from those before me and I'm standing on their shoulders and so I know that part of my work is that um, I actually have to, I can't abandon this now. I know what it is. So I don't have the option to say, I don't want to do it. Um, so part of what helps for people is to just maybe sometimes lurk on social media and just to start reading and watching other people who are saying, I'm really new to this. How do I do this work? Uh, what does this look like? What does this mean for me personally? Uh, then, you know, you're, you're going to get into book studies depending on what your own identity is and what it is you need to learn about and what you have to undo. Um, I even had to, like, I, I grew up Catholic and I had to undo, oh, you too, are you reformed? Re- recovering, recovered, mostly recovered, recovered, I would say. Yeah, the guilt, Catholic guilt complex right. took a while to right. dismantle. And and when I think about what I had to undo there, I had to undo the way I thought about gay people because of the messages that I was getting from 
people in the church. And then I'm just like, wait a minute. Now these are human beings. Like this is not, so that was real personal undoing work that I had to do. I think I do the same thing with issues of race. Like, of course I have internalized a whole bunch of things about other races. Like I have believed all kinds of myths and stereotypes about other races. How do I undo that? Like I've been on this journey for two years now of, of looking at my own bookshelves and going, I have no Native American authors. I don't know. I don't know Native American stories. How do I do better? Right. So Dr. Debbie Reese is very helpful in that area. Um, that there are Dr. Adrian Keene, who is brilliant, right? Who um, is an academic, but talks about the ways in which we have to consent to learn in public if you're going to teach in public. Um, it's slow. It's, it's, I'm not an expert because I've done this work. I'm, I'm just an expert on me and my own identity. And, um, you know, keep, keep reading books. Also, the, the, there's this fabulous thing called the internet <laughs> that you can find any information that you, you don't even have to live in a community with people of color or people who are marginalized and oppressed. You don't even have to live in those communities. As a matter of fact, if you don't live in those communities, you should ask yourself how you got to that community and what it is your ancestors did to ensure that you were kept away from all of those people. And then you got to start unpacking all of that stuff. So um, go at your own pace, but know that once you see something, you will not unsee it. And you do not have the option of abandoning this work once you pick it up. Yeah, it's the, uh, the old cliche with great power comes great responsibility. And, and, uh, it's, I've really appreciated, um, following you on Twitter and I've really appreciated this conversation and everybody listening should check out at Mocha Mama and I'll make sure that there's links to, uh, to follow you and check out your blog. I really appreciate it, Kelly, for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to meet with me this morning and I'd love to do it again sometime because I think there's probably a lot more we can talk about. So, um, probably yes. And I want to thank you because this is also, like I said, this is time of healing for me. So thank you for that. Yeah, do you have any last, any, where, where else can people learn more? So, um, being black, uh, being at, black school. at school yeah. dot org and, um, also the work that I do with crossroads, anti-racism, organizing and training. Uh, those, those are trainings and workshops that go uh, on all across the United States. And so I travel a lot for that as well. Okay. Awesome. I'll make sure that there are links to all of those things in the, uh, in the notes for the show and yes, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Powerful, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in the wise and skillful use of power. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show as it helps us reach more listeners and have a bigger impact in the world. Huge thanks to Kelly Wickham-Hurst. You can learn more about her at beingblackatschool.org and at Mocha Mama on Twitter.